Scripture passage this morning is Genesis chapter 11, verse 10 through chapter 12, verse 9, Pew Bible, page 16. And now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. This is the account of Shem. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became, he became the father of our foxhead. And after he became the father of our foxhead, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When our foxhead had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, our fox had lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Reu. And after he became the father of Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he became the father of Sirug. And after he became the father of Sirug, Reu lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sirug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Sirug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Paran. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. 
Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Have you ever seen that, um, that game, three-card Monty or three-cup Monty? Uh, lots of times they're played in uh, big city streets. It's a, uh, a gimmick to basically steal people's money. But, you know, they put three cards down and they flip them around. And you're supposed to guess which card is the king. Or they got three cups and then they'll put a ball in one cup and they'll flip them around really, really fast. But these people, they're really good at, you know, like barely opening the cup and switching the cup where the ball is and all that kind of stuff. Well, not too long ago, uh, I saw a video of a dad messing with his son using this three-cup Monty game. So he took like a $10 bill and he showed his son, here's this $10 bill. And he opened, he lifted up one of the cups And he stuck that $10 bill underneath that cup. And he told his son, if you can point to which one the $10 bill is in, you can keep it. And so his son's like, okay, cool, I'm going to get some free money. Um, So his dad started shifting the cups around, right? And he wasn't all that good at this, to be honest with you. It It was really bad. And the son, he could figure out where that last cup where the cup was with the $10 bill. And so after he, his, the father was done moving the cups around, the son said, it's, it's in that one. And his dad lifted that cup up, and there's the $10 bill. And, and the son is like, yes, oh, yeah, I got $10. And then his dad lifted the other two cups, and a bunch of $100 bills started flinging out. And so he was like, oh. Um, the reason I tell you that... Uh, analogy, that story, is because um, because often we're fixated on what we see, on what we know. The son knew that that $10 was in that one cup because he saw his dad do that. He didn't see his dad put all the money in the other two cups. And so because he was fixated on that, he couldn't even imagine that there would be more money under the other two cups. He couldn't imagine that there would be something better that he couldn't see. And I think that um, that story is insightful for us because this calling of Abraham is really all about the fact that Abraham was able to see something he couldn't see. Abraham is a man, by God's grace, who didn't look under the cup with the $10, but had the ability to see something that could be greater. And Hebrews 11 opens up with this very verse. Faith is the assurance of things Hope for the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. And it really fits with our theme this morning. What we gain in Christ by following God is far greater than what we lose. 
We have two points this morning. The first is from Shem to Abraham. And the second is from Abraham to the world. Now I understand that uh, at this point in the narrative, he's called Abram. But for the sake of simplicity and because most of us are more familiar with saying Abraham, I'm just going to simply uh, use a little foreshadowing and start calling him Abraham now, okay? Let's start with that first point, from Shem to Abraham. The second part of Genesis chapter 11, following the Tower of Babel, is another genealogy. In fact, it's a couple of them. If you understand that the book of Genesis is broken up into uh, a number of Toledotes, or when we have a heading that says, this is the account of, that's your marker. That's the division line for Genesis. Um, In Genesis chapter 11, this section, this second part, we actually have two Toledotes. This is the account of Shem. This is the account of Terah. It's a continuation of what we already saw in Genesis chapter 10, verse 21 through 31, when we looked at the generation of Shem. But this narrows down to one branch of Shem's lineage, Arphaxad. And because it dwindles down to that, because it culminates in the most important patriarch uh, that Moses wants to focus us on, Abraham. This genealogy holds to a strict pattern. If you couldn't tell by my repetitious reading, if that didn't lull you to sleep, when X lived Y years, he became the father of Z. And X lives after he became the father of Z, Y years. And X became the father of other sons and daughters. Klein says the form of this genealogy is in the style of Genesis 5. This is important because Genesis 5 is the genealogy of the covenant line of Seth. Where you give age notations for each patriarch before and after his fathering. But without the total lifespan or a notice of death. And I think that's interesting to think of too because many of the genealogies that we've seen already in Genesis ended with that repetition. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. Almost as if to remind us continuously that sin has entered into the world and that the wages of sin is death. Now we don't find that reputation or repetition here in this Genesis genealogy. Almost as if to foreshadow the gift of life that would come through this line in Christ. The gift of eternal life. Nonetheless, there is a notion of pointing to the continuation of the curse. And that is, it's very easy to realize the ages of these men going down. Our fox said, lived 403 years. Shayla lived 403 years. Peleg lived 430 years. Peleg lived 209 years. Rahu lived 207, 200, 119. You see the point. The curse is very much alive. And the effects of the curse are making their way through humanity. Klein believes the genealogy here Mary decline, attest to God's sovereign faithfulness in preserving the community of faith within the city of man with its 
Nimrods through all these ages. There are two exceptions to the formula of this genealogy. The first is in verse 10, where we're told about Shem that two years after the flood, he had uh, our fox had. And that's to give us the historical context. Uh, this is not a full genealogy, it is a selective genealogy. Uh, the, the second exception to this formula is in verse 26, where when we end with Terah, it doesn't say Terah lived X years and had other sons and daughters. And that's obviously to show us the Terah story is continued in the next genealogy. So that's the account of Shem. But the account of Terah begins in 27 and goes to verse 32. This is a more focused genealogical structure. Because we're narrowing down even more. And what I want you to think of is that the, uh, the focus of the biblical narrative is going, has gone, from the first two humans that ever lived to a swath of humanity down to, once again, Noah and his family, to an expansion of, uh, of its view to all of human history and all the many peoples and tribes and languages and land divisions and places where they pilgrimaged and, and went and spread out all over, to the, all over the world to now narrowing down once again to focus upon the descendants of the Israelites. In a very real sense, it's sort of like God's way of saying we're moving away from world history to Jewish history. It's shocking when you think of it in that way because from now on, all of the nations and peoples that were mentioned before are fated to turn away from the living God, to lose their sight of the one true God who created them in his image, to come away from the religion of the one true God and to digress into paganism, multiplicity of gods, a pantheon. You know, that is interesting because world history often thinks that the development of religions went a different direction. It starts with elemental worship, thunder, lightning, rain, moves to paganism, gods for seasons, gods for a variety of different things, progressing into a more structured monotheism. That's the history of religious studies. But Genesis chapter 11 tells us that's not the way it went. It tells us that the peoples went out from monotheism and digressed into other forms of worship. It's the end of world history for the Bible. That is until Christ comes and in him 
the story of our peoples and our nations are once again brought together. The account of Terah is much like the account of Noah. We're told of a man who had three sons. We're told one of his sons, Haran, has a son, Lot. And this mention is important because we're told of his subsequent death. It anticipates chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 5, where we're told that Lot is, in a sense, adopted by his grandfather and then by his uncle, Abraham. The two remaining brothers marry. Nahor marries his brother's daughter. It most likely shows an early form of Leverite law, a legal protection, so to speak. It also anticipates Isaac's future marriage to the granddaughter of Nahor and Milcah, Rebekah. Abraham marries Sarai, his half-sister, although this detail is not mentioned here. Uh, we are given a note of great importance here as well, one that stops you in your tracks in a genealogy that is so focused upon he became the father of so-and-so, lived so many years and had other sons and daughters. He became the father of so-and-so, lived so many years and had other sons and daughters. And then, bam, Sarai was barren. She had no children. One commentator says, this is a natural obstacle that existed in the genealogical sources of the promised seed. What does this tell us? It tells us the fulfillment of the promise would demand the Lord's supernatural intervention. We are then told that Terah with Abraham, Lot, and Sarah left Ur to go to the land of Canaan, but stopped in Haran, where Terah lived out the rest of his life and died. Uh, one of the things that we need to determine before we move to chapter 12 is where exactly did Abraham receive his call? Stephen, when he is before the religious leaders and acts, recounts the story of their people. And he tells us that Abraham received his call while he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans. Nonetheless, we're told here... At the end of Genesis 11, that Abraham leaves Ur of the Chaldeans with his father as they're going to the land of Canaan, but they stop in Haran. There's a delay in the progress. What I believe happens here is that Abraham, according to chapter 12, which is the reason why the NIV translates it in the past tense, the Lord had said to Abram, came to Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans and called Abram out of that land. But Abram brought his father along. And his father became, in a sense, a thorn in his side, a reason why Abram did not follow after God's call fully and completely, stopping in Haran. It might have to do with Abraham's called to leave his father's household. And the pagan status of his father, Terah. The word Terah means moon. Historically, Haran, the city of Haran, was a well-known worship center of the moon god. 
Joshua chapter 24, as the Israelites are entering into the promised land, mentions that Abraham, their father, belonged to a, a group of pagan worshipers. And that is sort of like how the Christian life can be, isn't it? God calls us to do something and then it sort of little steps and we're moving along and then God calls us to somewhere and we've got this distraction, this, you know, stop that we have to make and well, that stop ends up being like 70 years. Until God comes in his grace again and he calls us forward. It's time to leave. It's time to go. This, I believe, is what happened with the call of Abraham. He goes with his father, his, grand, his uh, nephew Lot, His wife, Sarah, they left Ur of the Chaldeans, but they didn't make it to Canaan. They had to stop in Haran. But eventually God in his grace comes and he calls Abram to move forward. I think a really important application at this point in the text might not be something that's seen on the surface. But oftentimes, Abram is seen as this guy whom God called to him, and then boom, Abraham believed, and he was on, and he was gone. He just followed God without a thought, without a second idea. This gives us a bit of a different picture. This gives us the idea that Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, but, but he, he, he sort of started his journey with God dragging his feet along. They were heading to Canaan, but they stopped in Haran. And I think that the comforting thing about that to me is that it reminds us that Abraham is not the one that we should be looking to. It's Jesus. Abraham is not perfect. Although we sing Father Abraham, although we see him as a patriarch, he, we're going to find out, is very much flawed. He needs the grace of Christ as well. But there's another application here as well that might not be seen on the surface, and I think it's this. You might be able to think of people who began the Christian journey with you on your way to the promised land. God called you both. But some have stopped off in Haran. They're no longer on that journey with you. And how are we supposed to view and understand these people that we care so deeply about and we love, we miss? 
Maybe they're our friends. Maybe they're our children. We're supposed to remember that even Abraham was called to the promised land and had to make a stop off in Haran, but eventually he made it, so we must be going before God and pleading with them the promises placed upon our dear friends, our children, that may still be in Haran and haven't made it, continuing in their journey to Canaan yet. Because as long as there is life left, as long as there is time left, we must never give up hope that God has finished with them. Continuing on to our second point, from Abraham to the world. Verse 1, we read, The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. What we have here is a command. A command to Abram that God calls him out. A command to leave things, a country, a people, a father's household. And to travel to a land that God is going to show them. We need to understand what God's commands are like. And often when I think of this command, I think of the words that got Augustine in trouble during the Pelagian controversy. The prayer that got Augustine in trouble was this. Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Think about it. Augustine is saying, Heavenly Father, command what you will, but whatever you command, grant that I may do it. You see, there can be an assumption given about commands in the Bible that if God commands it, then we must be able to accomplish it. But here we are, Genesis chapter 12, and I think we've seen enough of the fallen depravity of humankind and understood its self-absorption and wickedness, and we understand that that's not true. So God is a gracious God. He commands what He wills, but He gives what He commands. He, he, he grants us the grace to listen, to hear, to obey. And you see, God has given us this command. He's given Abram this command. He gives us commands as well. But there's a promise attached to this command. In verse 2, God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You know, um, 
when I read the promise given here by God, I think of that famous Christmas verse in Isaiah chapter 9. It's one that uh, it's one that you and I, Rick, have talked about a lot. Those words. Prince of Peace. On his shoulders will be a government. And his government will expand and expand. And all these great promises of the one who's going to come, right? But it's those words. It's those words at the end that that can really hit you, right? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Well, take that, that promise of God that all these things are going to come true. And, and how do you know that they're going to come true? Well, because I said so. That's why only God can really say that, even though us parents are fond of saying that, because I said so. In this promise that God gives, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is the God of I will. This is a promise that God gives to Abraham, not on the basis of anything that he does. God says, I will. And when God says, I will, he will. Look at what God promises to him. God promises this man who has a barren wife that he will make him into a great nation. Unlike those who gathered together to create a tower that could reach all the way to the heavens and to make a name for themselves, God promises he's going to make Abraham's name great. He's going to make Abraham a blessing. God promises to bless those who bless Abraham and to curse those who curse him. And there at the end of verse 3, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is a man in his 70s with a wife who can't have babies being told these wonderful things. There is nothing in Abraham's current life context that would even hint to or point to the fact that any of these things could come true. Abraham, at this point, could easily have been the one who focused on what he could see. That $10 under that one cup. God is promising him all those $100 bills under the other cups that he did not see put there. Abraham knows he's got the $10 here. What's he going to do? 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham, because through you will come Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does Abraham respond? Well, if we understand that God's command here is an effective calling, that God's command here is in line with Augustine's prayer, God, command what you will and give what you command. Grant what you command. And we're not surprised to see that Abram left as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Law, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. You know, it's wonderful when the New Testament gives us commentary on these kinds of happenings. And Hebrews chapter 11 is very much this. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when, he call, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Abraham left everything that he knew, everything that he had, everything that he could see with his own eyes for a place he did not know where it was and promises that were only that, promises. By faith, Abraham did this. This is what we call a faithful obedience. It's a faith that believes, that hopes for the things not yet seen. It's a belief that clings to the greater possessions and the greater joys that by faith we behold, by faith we see. Abraham did this, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, calls us to this himself when he says, whoever gives up anything in this life will have in this life, although through persecutions and the next, more mothers, more fathers, more brothers, more sisters, Faithful obedience is an obedience that believes in the promises. You see, when Abraham got up and he left, he's expressing his faith in the promises of God, the promises that were told to him. And he comes to Canaan, a picture for us of the new heavens and the new earth to come. And it's not yet quite like maybe Abraham had envisioned. Verse 6 tells us, Abram believed or traveled through the land as far as the side of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. 
So here's Abraham entering into this land that the Lord has promised him, yet he's still in the midst of these Canaanites. This is meant to give us an understanding of and there's an imminent threat. But here, as Abraham is in the midst of his enemies, Abraham is in the midst of this land that the Lord has promised him, and the Lord meets him there. And this, I think, brings to mind for myself those words of Christ to his disciples. Not to take us out of this world. But to be with us in it. To protect us. There's great danger in that great commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father. The Son and the Holy Spirit. There's great danger in that calling, is there not? There have been many who have died for that commission, for that mission. There have been many who have died seeking that Christ would be known among the nations. They went to Canaan knowing that the Canaanites were still in the land. Believing. The gospel will be powerful to convert. And they went clinging to that promise. Lo, I am with you always. To the end of the age. Well, the Lord appeared to Abraham in the land of Canaan. Amidst the Canaanites, and he gave another promise. To your offspring, I will give this land. And so Abraham stakes that promise. He built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abraham says, I know that you have promised you're going to give me this land. So here I am setting my mark. Here's the down payment. I'm putting it on layaway. I'm storing up that promise. Now this is important in our translation. Why we make sure that we translate things um, so that intertextually things make sense. Because in verse 7, God said to Abraham, To your seed I will give this land. And that's important, not only because in Genesis chapter 3 we are told that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. But we're also told in Galatians chapter 3 that the singularity of that word, the seed, to your seed I will give this offspring is actually more important than we think. Paul the Apostle says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. That's what we're doing this morning, right? Considering Abraham. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Not only when it said, through you, all peoples on earth will be blessed, but also announced the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations would be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Continuing on, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And listen to this. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, quoting from our scripture passage this morning, meaning one person. Who is Christ? What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not present, represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith could be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. I know that's a lot, but I wanted to read it in context so that you can understand the way Paul sees this moment when God comes to Abraham and says, to your seed, I will give this land. is a promise 
given to Jesus Christ, his seed. And Jesus Christ was given not just a promised land, but in Romans chapter 4, we are told that Abraham was promised the world. God is promising Abraham that through his seed, Christ, he will inherit the world to come. But not now. You see, we continue reading, and we read that Abraham is not going to receive the world to come in this life. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord, called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. When you read that, you get the idea that Abram is a pilgrim. He lives in tents. He has nowhere that he calls home. And in fact, if you continue reading in Hebrews chapter 11... The next two verses, after 11, verse 8. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. We are not in the world to come yet either. And so much of looking at the promises of God and taking hold of them by faith in Jesus Christ is knowing that what it is that we can't see now is just as real or even more real than what we can The story of Abraham reminds us that we are pilgrims in this world we're in tents. These bodies are our tents. That one day we will take off when we enter into the resurrection and the life to come. But until then, we're wandering. But we're not lost. Until then, we are called to look at those two other cups that we didn't see what was underneath. And to believe that in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, we gain far more than what we lose. Amen. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the call of Abraham. <coughs> promises that you gave to him that have found their way to us in Jesus Christ. And may we, Lord, know that what we gain in following you and Jesus Christ is far greater than anything that we could lose in this life. May you help us, Lord, To obey your command with faithful obedience. To cling to your promises in Jesus Christ. To see him as our Savior and as our Lord. 
And to know that even though we may be pilgrims in this world, in this life, that there is a day coming when we will be at home with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you sing with me? Come share the Lord.